Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. Well, hello, Sharon. How are you today? I'm back home from mid-year assembly. I'd rather be in our nation's capital, but (laughs) you got to come home sometime. But what a great meeting it was, right? I know. It was fantastic. And our guest today, we wanted to tape while we were there, but she's so important to uh, the machinations of our meeting up there that we just couldn't get our timing right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first we want to say welcome to our listeners, and then we want to say hello to our guest, Miss Jennifer Bannock. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I am looking forward to this. Yeah. So we actually recorded you a little bit while we were at mid-year, so we got to do this face-to-face, and now we get to do the additional recording, but we're not together, unfortunately. Right, right. Yeah, that's all. It's all good. (laughs) Well, Well, you were too busy. She's packed chair and the big pack event and you spoke at the meeting. So we were fortunate enough to just give her, get her long enough to record her candidate statement. Yeah, that was just my second mid-year assembly that I had attended. But um, I think around the time that I attended the first mid-year assembly, probably about four years ago is really when I had gotten hooked onto advocacy for nurse anesthetists. So um, it was really packed with uh, things that I was engaged with this time, which was fun. Well, that's great. That's great. Well, Sharon, do you want to introduce what we're talking about today? Because I think this is kind of exciting. Absolutely. You know, I've interviewed Jennifer for another project that I was working on because Jennifer uh, has run for office before. So, you know, we had lots to talk about. So before we dive into that. Tell a little bit about yourself and what office you ran for and tell why we had to get this in pretty quickly to 
day because you're leaving again. That's right. So um, yes, I'm a nurse anesthetist in Illinois, and I'm also licensed in uh, the state of Wisconsin. Um, I became a nurse anesthetist in 2012, was pretty uh, removed from um, the uh, advocacy and association part of it uh, for about five years after graduating. Um, and then our state president did something that I think we don't do often enough. And he just asked if I wanted to be involved. Sometimes I think people are afraid of becoming engaged and they just need somebody to ask or give them a, a little push. So a, a nurse anesthetist by the name of Ed Grademan in Illinois. Um, asked me if I wanted to be engaged in coming to fundraisers and such. Politics has always been something I've been really interested in. So it was when my passion for our profession and my passion for politics collided. And, you know, I was getting a really intimate view when I was meeting with legislators. And uh, I realized that um, we had some issues as far as being nurse anesthetists. We had some issues in our advocacy. And so I thought, I'm going to be one of those people, one of those elected officials someday. And so I didn't have a real clear picture about what that looked like. And, you know, certainly it was my passion for our profession. Um, but I will say most recently, um, my husband and I have a son who's autistic and uh, we had to look for residential placement for him. That was quite uh, arduous. And it took about a year's worth of time because you have to find a facility that can accommodate the needs of your loved one. And then you have to coordinate financing. Um, in the state of Illinois, it's about ten dollars to $15,000 per child per month to place them in residential housing. So it's not like you just hand over your insurance card. So I learned how government really can affect its constituents. So um, there were a, a number of factors that influenced my uh, desire to run. It took probably a year or two after um, I knew that I wanted to run for something for a county board member to reach out to me. So what I found is you kind of make it known amongst your um, political enthusiasts that you're interested in <laughs> running. And uh, then it, it's on everyone's radar. And so a county board member reached out to me and said, you know, um, we'd love it if you'd consider running for that county coroner position. I took, a, I think, two or three days to think about it. Um, because the coroner position, as we'll talk about, I imagine later on today, is not really something that many people know about, let alone understand or appreciate that it's elected. So it was something I needed to find out more about myself. And then I enthusiastically jumped in with two feet. Um, I'm also a captain in the United States Army Reserves. And so you mentioned um, this Friday and why we had to do this quickly is because I'm going to be going to South Korea for three weeks to help out with an exercise um, that's happening in South Korea. So, Wow. That's a mouthful. <laughs> yes, sir. I'm getting ready. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. You are getting ready. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, you know, what made you decide to run for office? Yeah, well, um, like I mentioned, it was really that um, moment where the first time that I went to Springfield to advocate on our behalf. And then in particular, I would say, or, or most recently, the situation with my, my son, um, I decided that I wanted to run for elected office. That was probably in, it was around 2019. 
um, because the office was going to be up for re-election. It was probably around the spring or the summertime. And um, so uh, they identified the coroner position as, as one that seemed to fit my background, especially because of uh, that I have a medical background. Now, I will tell you that by Illinois statute, it is not required for you to have a medical background. Um, it's required for you to be a resident and 18 years of age. So and we can go into uh, what the coroner does a little bit later on, if you'd like. Um, but yeah, so that started my my campaigning crusade. And um, I feel like I had kind of two obstacles that were unusual. So I decided I was going to run in 2019. But I also knew that at that time, I also had a mobilization for the military coming up. So I was gone from October 2019 till about February 2020, um, which was when we needed to uh, hand in our petitions for candidacy. So in the state of Illinois, you're required to get signatures. And um, the amount of signatures um, is determined by how many people voted in that election and uh, previously. So you needed about 700 signatures. Of course, you don't get just 700 signatures in case somebody challenges those signatures. So you usually get two or three times that amount, which I think we had somewhere around 17 or 1800 signatures. Those signatures needed to be turned in while I was away. So you know, I think especially when you're starting out, uh, folks in general don't realize how much heart goes into running for office. And by that, I mean, I had to spend quite a lot of time before I left. This is all volunteer time, sitting out at train stations, grocery stores, uh, local, um, you know, hot spots in the community where you can uh, ask people for, for signatures. And um, then when I left, I had to ask somebody else to turn my signatures in for me. So somebody else went down to the county building and did all of that. Additionally, um, because I was on active duty, I wasn't able to actively campaign myself. Um, that's something that's prohibited by law. So I had people that I needed to be my voice back home until February of 2020. And then when I came back, I had only about three weeks to really actively campaign because then, as we all know, I think it was March 17th, uh, you know. Uh, we all shut down for about two years, right? <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so that was obstacle number two. Let me ask you a question. Not every place mandates the signatures. North Carolina does not. You were running against an incumbent who was a dentist, right? That's correct. Did if you're an incumbent, do you have to get the signatures again? You do. Yes. That's a form of campaigning, right? Yes, it it absolutely is a form of campaigning, Sharon. And I'm glad you brought that up. You know, it's an opportunity to get out and, you know, talk to people. You start developing your message. And when people sign those petitions, all they're saying is, I want this person to be on the ballot. Um, It is not making any type of uh, commitment to voting for that person. It's just saying, I'm okay with putting this person on the ballot, but you're absolutely right. It's, it is a way of campaigning. Um, you know, it, again, it's just a very labor intensive process. It sounds kind of easy. You just get some signatures, but the person that collects those signatures then needs to get them notarized. Um, and they are saying that I witnessed these people um, do these signatures. So, you know, and like, for instance, if you collected the signatures, you couldn't have somebody else get them notarized. Um, you know, it, it does require a lot of effort. So, but we did it. <laughs> well, did anybody tell you no when you asked them? Oh, sure. I'm absolutely positive they did. I don't think too much about those details, though. I, 
you just don't have time to think about no. Um, you need to keep moving on. You sure. brought something else up though that I I guess I think is important. That's correct. My um, predecessor, the incumbent, was a dentist. So, you know, that was really something he capitalized on um, in terms of his campaigning that he would say he was doctor um, so-and-so. And so, um, you know, it opened up opportunity to have a dialogue about what it meant to be a doctor. As you know, our programs have all transitioned such that um, our students are doctorally prepared. And that's caused a little, um, some problems about how we refer to ourselves in the clinical setting. So it was a really great opportunity to educate people um, because they don't realize that we call lots of people doctors who are not medical doctors, um, but certainly have earned that title. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com or call him at 504-394-6557. So what all, I mean, the campaigning process, now you, I'm assuming this was a party affiliation, you ran as a Democrat, your your predecessor there, I think was a Republican, correct? That's correct. Okay. And kind of talk about the campaigning process a little bit more, you know, what all did you have to do and what did you go through? And, and so our listeners will know a little bit more about that process. So I think it's really important. Uh, People tell me that they're interested in running for political office. I think it's really important that people uh, affiliate themselves then with their local party structure. And by that, what I mean is um, every township, every county, you know, kind of depends on where you are and how how developed uh, the party is in your area. But they will have a group that you can then go to. Um, And as I mentioned, I I told you, I talked to my political enthusiasts. Those were the people that were in that framework that I said, hey, I think I want to run for something. It was those people. And it's important to have those people um, because then they are a little more familiar with the inner workings and uh, they can bring to your attention a position that might come available. Uh, They also provide you support um, for things like those petitions. There's actually you know, there's lawyers that specialize in election law, and those petitions can become uh, very important, if, certainly if somebody challenges them. So that framework provides all of that kind of support. Um, I eventually hired a campaign manager the last four months of my campaign. Previously, everybody was all volunteer. And this was somebody, though, that I paid for, and I got that reference from that framework. So that framework is really important. Certainly, you can do it without that framework, but I suspect that uh, without that expertise, it would be uh, a problem, especially if you were running for something that was countywide like I was. If you're running for school board or um, township position, it might be easier, but a countywide position in a county with 700,000 people, I needed those people. So um, I got my signatures, I've got my framework, 
and then you have to raise money. So raising money means that you have to register with the states because all of that information is public um, knowledge, who's giving to you and how much do you have. And then you have to raise the money. You have to learn how to have your, what we would call an elevator speech, which is usually an abbreviated version of who you are and why you're running. And, you know, then you need to connect people to a, a platform such that they can, they can donate, which traditionally in the left-leaning world, it's Act Blue, And I think in the right-leaning world, it's called Win Red. So these are platforms that have been developed that allow people to, to contribute to candidates' campaigns. So those are all things, uh, you know, that you learn about that are actually quite complicated and, you know, have kind of a steep learning curve. Um, so I did raise $30,000 for my campaign. It was the most amount of money that was raised for this particular position. Um, I think previously, uh, predecessor raised about $25,000. People often wonder what that money is used for. So it's used for yard signs. Um, it's used for mailers. We put out three mailers. And uh, mailers in particular are very expensive. I also did a brief 60-second commercial. Sometimes you might ask um, people to um, go door to door with for you. And, you know, it's hard work. So you want to compensate them a little bit for their time. So you might use that money for that. So $30,000 is a lot of money, but really, you know, we were counting pennies. I will tell you something that I did that was kind of creative. I thought was I try to be conscientious and, and green when I can. I went to Goodwill. I just bought a 40 t-shirts <laughs> and then I went to somebody to print them because I thought, oh, I don't know that anybody's going to want to wear a corner t-shirt outside of a parade after the election <laughs> is over. <laughs> um, but it was actually kind of a creative approach. And I kept that song. I'm going to pop some tags. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I left the Goodwill tickets on the t-shirts. Um, so that was a, a creative way to campaign um, and to save money. I also did uh, what I called Zoom coffees. And um, people would, sometimes I would ask people to pay, you know, $20 to come. And that helped me campaign wise. Sometimes it was just a means to do outreach. In other words, if you had a book club, invite all your book club members, and I'll tell you them who they are. So um, I had a point person and all of their connections, uh, you know, they tried to connect me uh, to them. Um, I also did this other initiative. Um, I called it Run Fast or Be Last. And I, I put out a promo video, which was about two minutes long. And my platform for that was there's 18 townships in my county, and I'm going to come and run a route by you. The reason for that was because of COVID. And I was out on the trails running and saw lots of families trying to enjoy weather past the time. And so I thought, well, I'm going to go and I would publish a route um, beforehand and I would say, you know, come and say hello as I'm running by, run with me, bike with me, walk with me, meet me at the start or the finish line, but come meet me. In addition, I would, um, you know, talk to people that I met along the way. I had plastic baggies with my business card and a mask. Um, Prior to starting, I would do about a 60-second Facebook Live video. And when you start learning the Facebook algorithm, all my good friends, I'd say, get on there and start liking it. <laughs> so that generates momentum. And then I'd say, then after I'm done, then share it. And then if I wanted to promo it more, you learn about what we call geofencing, which would mean 
that I could pay for an ad. I could say, I want to reach this demographic and I could push that video out. So it was a really good, pretty inexpensive way to campaign. So that was how I overcame obstacle number two, um, the COVID issue. Um, and that's how I got out and talked to people because traditionally what we would be doing is you would go and you would have um, information about a voter and you would, what we do, cut lists. What we say is cut lists. And you would know where you were supposed to go, what address, what kind of voter they were, um, and you'd go door to door. So this seemed a safer, more palatable way to, to reach people. I think it worked. <laughs> Clearly, uh, really, yeah. since, you, since you won, it did work. Now, how many states did you get money from? Because I know I donated to your campaign. Do you remember? Yeah, I don't remember. I, I don't remember how many states, but you're absolutely right, Sharon. That was something that I capitalized on was that um, another nurse anesthetist having a platform like this really benefits all of us. And so I would um, plug my candidacy on social media within our groups. Um, and so I don't know, maybe 10 to 15 other states. Um, you know, with nurse anesthetists that contributed to my campaign. I had a nurse anesthetist from Oklahoma even make phone calls for me. You know, I think that's something that people in other states don't necessarily realize. You can make phone calls uh, to support somebody that you feel strongly about, even, you know, regardless of where you live. So that's a great, I'm glad you brought that up because the people who did my phone calls for me were from all over the country. Yeah. Now, the one thing that I did wrong in that is now you can generate a number, whereas then it was just people calling from their cell phones and not all the time would somebody pick up, which is fine. They still would leave the message, which a robot call, it, the message gets truncated. But everybody, I mean, I had them from all over the country making telephone calls. So, um, well, it sounds like you come up with some great ideas for campaigning. And, you know, since we're talking to you, they know that you won. So why don't you tell a little bit about uh, the election itself? There were some challenges there, I believe. Yeah, there were some challenges. I had somebody actually from my own political party who, um, you know, really challenged my status as, an, as a, quote, nurse. Now, we know, your listeners know that I'm an advanced practice nurse. Um, I, you know, am highly specialized in my um, area of expertise. But we had a, a gentleman, like I said, from actually my own party who was trying to, to work against me. I, let's see, an election night, um, it was pretty close. I was either ahead by just a little bit or behind by just a little bit. I can't recall exactly. And so... As of election night, I wasn't necessarily certain that, you know, that this was a done deal. Those people in the party, that framework, they were pretty confident it was a done deal because they knew that with uh, early voters and absentee voters that I would come ahead um, in, you know, two weeks after the, the election would be certified, which I did. Um, so that was good. So, but, you know, you're spending, gosh... Every night, I would say anywhere between two and four hours campaigning. And all the while, this is all voluntary. I have no idea that I'm going to win. Um, in fact, sometimes you question your sanity a little bit. You know what this is like. <laughs> right? Agreed. You know, it, it isn't easy. That's for sure. Well, it's not for 
wimps. You are right. I mean, it 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 is it is a lot of work, but the rewards um, from it. I mean, it is the truth. If you work hard for something, it certainly means a whole lot more to you at the end of the day. And I will say, you mentioned obstacles. I'm thinking about it now. While I was campaigning, my husband left for an overseas deployment. He was deployed to the Middle East, (laughs) so. So, uh, you know, when he came back in uh, March of 2021, you know, all of a sudden I had this additional responsibility. And um, so life had changed at home a little bit, but he's always been extremely supportive. So I'm very thankful for that. Yeah. And now he's in he a CRNA as well. He is a nurse anesthetist yes. as well. And he is um, in the Navy. He served on active duty for about 11 years and now he's a reservist. Um, but yeah, he's done some really amazing things himself and has gone on a number of deployments, including Afghanistan. So pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855 304 3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. All right, so what exactly does the coroner's office do? And you you mentioned a little bit earlier about you had a medical background. And, you know, when I think of coroner, I I don't think of CRNA. Um, So kind of walk me through this a little bit. Are you old enough, Jeremy, to remember Quincy M.E.? Quincy M.E. I'm oh, not sure no. about Quincy are you, M.E. Are you Sharon? Oh, yes. Okay. Oh, yes. I, I was even younger, so Jeremy would not re- would not remember it. That was think. a television show. It was Quincy Medical Examiner. Okay. So, um, and I think people probably uh, kind of like folks know CSI. Folks uh, right. you know, a generation or so ago think of Quincy M.E. And, uh, you know, that Hollywood notion of, of what it's like to be a coroner. So there's 102 counties in Illinois, um, and there's only one uh, that requires you to be a medical examiner, which means that you're required to be a medical doctor. With that being said, you could not do autopsies on your own uh, decedents that would come to your office because it would be a conflict of interest. The idea of the coroner position is that you are a person who is neutral in determining the manner of death. So I tell people that there's three parts to a death investigation. The first part is the actual investigation itself. That's what the deputy does. They get the phone call. They realize that this is a suspicious death, potentially preventable. We assume jurisdiction over it. So they go out to the scene. They take pictures. And sometimes I go out to the scene. I'm certainly able to go out to the scene. It's just in terms of, you know, workflow and everybody uh, not getting too depleted. But Yes, sometimes I go out as well. So the deputy does the scene investigation. The next day, usually the next day, assuming that the decedent is not COVID positive or you know some other considerations that we might think about, like for instance, if it was a homicide, we wouldn't wait to find out if the person had COVID or not because we need to collect that evidence as soon as possible. So we do an autopsy soon after uh, we bring the decedent's body back to our office. Uh, I do have a forensic pathologist on staff, Um, so he is a a full-time employee, and uh, he and then one of my other employees, an autopsy technician, would do the the actual autopsy itself, and he would determine cause of death. 
gunshot wound to the head, anoxic brain injury, anything like that. So he would determine cause of death. Then I would determine manner of death. And you can, so manner of death is any one of five things, um, accident, homicide, natural, undetermined, or suicide. And you can think about that that's not as clear as one might think if, for instance, somebody dies of an overdose and it's marijuana tainted with fentanyl. So um, that person maybe thought that they were just uh, having marijuana, but it was contaminated with fentanyl. And then, you know, there's some folks that feel that that should be ruled actually a homicide. Um, So it's not as necessarily easy as one would think. And so, Jeremy, you mentioned, you know, when you think of coroner, you don't think nurse anesthetist. But I would argue that much of who I am and my training is actually quite helpful. Um, You know, after we do our preliminary autopsy, we send labs off and get a toxicology report. But after we do that physical autopsy, there's a lot of information we have. And we can kind of suspect where we're headed. And so I will call the family and I will talk to them about the autopsy results. And these are folks that oftentimes don't have a medical background. So this isn't dissimilar to what we do in the hospital in describing an anesthetic or telling a loved one what's going on with their family member. Um, so, you know, I, you might have heard me talk about there was a particular case where there was a gentleman that went in and had some teeth removed. It was at an oral and maxillofacial surgeon's office. And um, this gentleman was given a large dose of anesthesia. In addition, he didn't have the proper monitoring devices on and um, he wasn't receiving oxygen, allegedly, according to the to the anesthetic report. And so, you know, this was something that this is in my wheelhouse as a nurse anesthetist. And so it was a very collaborative effort between myself and our forensic pathologist. So Yes, I understand um, that it's not necessarily the first thing you would think of, um, but I think that my strengths actually bode very well for the position. Um, you know, my, my military background has been helpful in terms of managing people. I manage an office of 15 folks. 12 of those 15 are uh, actually in a union. So that was one of the first things I did when I came to the office. The union contract had expired by a year and a half, so I helped negotiate that contract which is actually quite uh, labor intensive. And I just love being able to stretch myself in those ways. The composition of those people that I mentioned, I have two administrative assistants, a forensic toxicologist, an autopsy technician, my forensic pathologist, and eight deputies, myself and my chief deputy. Um, So the three people that are not in the union are myself, my chief deputy, and the forensic pathologist. Um, so, you know, managing the day-to-day, the scheduling, things like that. So tell us what your week looks like and how you integrate being a CRNA and being the corner of a town of 700,000. Yeah. So, um, you know, I come into the office, take care of uh, business stuff or any meetings that I need to take care of. I mean, by and large, I wouldn't say there is necessary, necessarily a routine. It changes frequently. I still do practice. Unfortunately, the practice that I'm at, uh, we take primary call. So it makes it very easy for me to get my hours in because I can work a 24 hour shift. And, uh, you know, I can be done for the week, I've put my time in. Um, My goal is to work about 20 hours a week. 
So, you know, I, I have my reserve duty. It's out in Fortsville, Oklahoma. I'll fly out on a Friday, come back on a Sunday. Um, it, you know, life is very full, but I love it. So I was going to say, how do you balance that with kids too? And, you know, your husband who could get deployed and he's working. And I mean, it just sounds like a very full platter. It is full. My kids are older. They're great. Certainly there's a lot of parenting still, but yeah. So how has running for office maybe changed your perspective a little bit? Yeah, I've, um, I've learned so much. I've learned a lot just about serving my community. And sometimes that's complicated Re- resources that are available to me. If I don't know the answer, I will say in terms of specifically of advocacy for nurse anesthetists, it's been quite interesting. I've learned a lot about um, lobbyists. You know, I think that's something that we as nurse anesthetists, this is not certainly not something that we are um, experts knowing about. Uh, yet this is really important to what happens in our capitals, both in the state and in Washington, D.C. Um, and I will speak for ourselves and here in Illinois. I think that the lobbies that we had previously were falling a little short and uh, running for elected office. I was at these campaign fundraisers all the time where lobbyists were. I was able to run by them like, hey, uh, you know, tell me about this. And is this a reasonable expectation of your lobbyist? So uh, I think I became much more well-versed in what we should be expecting from our lobbyists. I became really good at messaging. Um, It's really important for you to message to people such that you're sending uh, what you want to send out to folks so that, um, you know, there's no misunderstanding, you're concise, you're strategic. So I learned a lot about messaging, you know, that's true, especially for those mailers that I put out. That was not something that was just done for me. Um, It was something that we had to go through several drafts to, to come up with a just right messaging. And now I will tell you that Louise was my campaign manager. She was my volunteer campaign manager. And she had a background in journalism. This was invaluable um, because Louise was really good at messaging. Uh, additionally, like I had never put out a press release before. Louise knew all about press releases. And I've, that's been helpful for me too, as I've seen how the AANA and our state association has tried to press out um, information to the public about who and what we are. So I have a much better understanding of how the press works. Let's see, fundraising. That's really important. Gosh, I didn't realize, um, you know, how important those political action committee funds were um, until, you know, my campaign manager that I hired, he gave me a list of people that he had gone through and searched. Jennifer has something in common with this association and they have money that they might want to give her. Mm. And so (laughs) that's exactly why our state association PACs and our PACs at the national level are so important because it's public information. Legislators look at that and, um, you know, then all of a sudden your association becomes of interest. It's kind of like a way to politically posture. It also says, wow, this association has this large amount of money. People put money where their, when people put money where their mouth is, then, you know, there's some value to it. So those are all really important lessons that I feel that I've learned that have helped me communicate to our colleagues to try to hopefully inspire and invigorate them to become engaged. I will tell you, when you're taking on a campaign for 700,000 people, a countywide campaign, which I actually have like 
four or five legislative districts. So it's significant. You realize that you can't do it all by yourself, um, that you really need to pull on other people's strengths. This is something else that I think sometimes within our associations, we haven't been so good at identifying other people that have strengths and pulling them in because in order to be rock stars, we really need a lot of people on board. How long is your term, Jennifer? It's four years. I'll be up again in 2024. Okay. So would you do it again? Absolutely. Yep. Absolutely. And I assume that this is just the beginning of your political career. We'll see what comes my way. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I understand you got to pick a seat that's winnable. Um, You were now how long you ran against an incumbent? How long had he been in office? He'd been in office one term. And there had been a series of one term corners for probably I would say, for probably about 12 years. Um, There was a corner that was in um, uh, there was a corner that was in this position for, I think, maybe two decades. And she was really well respected. Interestingly, she, um, she was uh, the other political persuasion. I really admired her tremendously. Um, And she was beloved by the community. She actually just passed away um, earlier this year. So um, yeah, she did some wonderful work. Wow. So this stuff's just really interesting to me because now I've got a CSI in my head after you you said that. So (laughs) wow, I wonder what she's seen, you know, I mean, um, and I'm sure you've seen a lot, <laughs> even. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you know, we appreciate you being on the show. Is there anything as we kind of conclude that you'd like to get across to our listeners or maybe leave them with? You know, if this is something that you're interested in, I'd encourage you to do it. I'm certainly available. I think lots of folks know where to find me. I'm pretty, I've got a pretty large social media footprint that it's easy to find me if you just search. You know, I I also think though, the importance of of being engaged, certainly um, at the state though, and and national level, we, uh, you know, as a parent from discussions that we had over this last weekend, you know, we need CRNAs to be engaged in each and every state uh, with their legislators. It's really important. It takes a long time. I say it takes time, people and money. Um, it's not going to happen overnight. Um, so, well, I love that you have found uh, an elected office that might not come to mind. I know in North Carolina, coroners are not elected, but nurse anesthetists could still serve at so many different levels. You don't necessarily have to uh, run for your state legislature or Congress. There's Board of Education, there's county commissioners, councilmen, all kinds of things where you can still serve that you should kind of take a look at. Opportunity knocks in strange places sometimes. And so it might not be, you know, a traditional path, um, but sometimes that's good. Did, did you ever think you'd be a corner? No, no. Never. Okay. All right. You never dreamt this in the back of your mind that maybe one day I'll be a corner. Never. Never. <laughs> Even right. when you were watching Quincy. <laughs> oh goodness. Well, Jennifer, we want to thank you for your time. Thank you for your service. Thank you for all that you do for the CRNA community. Um you're just a special person and you know, we wanna thank you also for being on this show with us, not once but twice in a matter of a couple days. And uh Sharon, I think it's a wrap. I think so. We want to thank our listeners as well for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and 
Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to help it grow, Sharon, how can they help us grow? The best way to help us grow is to leave us a review, but make it positive. There's enough negativity in this world. Absolutely. Share us on social media. Tell all your friends because we're in the top 50 medical podcasts in the country and Jeremy wants to be number one. Of course, you know, Sharon, we're going to have a million downloads this year. Can you believe that? That's nuts. From where we started at that meeting in Charlotte talking about this to having a million downloads this year. It's crazy. Crazy. It is. All right. Until next time. It's a wrap. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. 
Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.